Today, we're going to look at Luke 2.11, part one this morning, part two tonight. And these are this is the verse that I referenced last week, shared that we would unpack later. And it reads like this. This is the angels speaking to the shepherds. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, last year on Christmas Eve, and I don't expect you necessarily to remember this, but I taught from this verse, and I shared with you last year as we focused on the word, in that word, the word Savior. And I shared that next year, which here we are, we would focus on the word Christ. And I would also submit that the word Savior has a profound significance for all of humanity. And so as we look at this message from the angel in Luke 2.11, Jesus is not only declared as being Savior and Lord, which is a massively profound statement, gargantuan in its implications, but the angel also declares Jesus as the Christ. Now, here's a question. Is that significant? Is that a big deal or not? I mean, and if it is significant, to what degree is that significant or relevant for us? So I would want you to know that the New Testament proclaims Jesus as the Christ no less than 569 times. In addition to that, just Paul's letter to the Romans alone declares Jesus as the Christ no less than 65 times. If you were or are a student of the Old Testament, you're aware that there's a myriad of predictions, prophecies around Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, some that are written a thousand years before Jesus arrives, some more than a thousand years, some many 600 to 700 years before Jesus arrives. And we're aware that in the Gospels, there are several persons who actually see that Jesus is the Christ. You might remember Jesus' interaction with Peter. Jesus says, Peter, who do people say that I am? Peter gives an answer. And then Jesus says this to him, Peter, who do you say? that I am. And Peter then responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And you may remember Jesus said something that parallels what I asked you to pray about. He said, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. This was revealed by my father to you. In other words, he experienced a drawing from God, a revealing from God, the father regarding God, the son. You may also remember at the resurrection of Lazarus, that Martha's having an interaction with Jesus, and she says to Jesus, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And so I would submit in light of the preponderance of what we're seeing in the Scripture and what we see both in the Old Testament and New Testament regarding the Christ, that we need to pay attention to this title. So let, let's break it down a little bit more. The, the title Christ in the Greek is actually the word Christos, and it means several things. One, it means anointed one, and I want you to know we need to pay attention to that, and I think that's going to make more sense in just a moment. Also, it's the New Testament word for Messiah. So anointed one, Messiah. And so Jesus is not 
being referred to as Jesus Christ because Christ is his last name. No, it's the role that he is fulfilling. He is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all these prophecies in the Old Testament. In fact, the Old Testament doesn't even make sense apart from reading it in the fabric of becoming Messiah. And it starts as early as the book of Genesis, Genesis 3, 15, where the author begins to talk about the seed of the woman. He's already pointing to the coming of the Messiah in the person of Jesus Christ. And then throughout the Old Testament, there's all kinds of references to uh, prayers for the Messiah, sacrifices that are types for what the Messiah would do one day when he hung on the cross, patterns in the tabernacle and the temple, even the prayers in the Old Testament, crying out for justice when there's unfairness in the world that the Messiah will ultimately make right. And all of this points to the Messiah, the Christ, the person of Jesus. All right. So, any of you ever, when you're reading your Bible, you get to those genealogies that so-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so, and then your mind begins to wonder? Does that happen? That just probably just happens to me, but not any of you. But, but you ever wonder, why did, do authors take time to put all these begots and all these names and all these details where there really are some important reasons? You see, in Israel, your family history mattered greatly because you wanted to know, as a person in with a Jewish lineage, you wanted to know what tribe your family was a part of. And this was very important in Jewish culture. And all of those records were stored at the Jewish temple. In fact, that's kind of a precursor to Ancestry.com, if you will. All that was stored there, if you will. And so a person could check out their ancestry by going to the temple. But in 70 AD, invaders destroyed the temple, burned it, and all those records were eradicated and destroyed, except the genealogy of Jesus. Now, why is that so? The reason that's so is because Matthew and Luke both preserved them in the letters or the gospels that they wrote. Matthew preserved the lineage of Joseph in Matthew 1. Luke preserved the lineage of Mary in Luke chapter 3. And the reason that's relevant is because it fulfilled another Old Testament prophecy regarding the Messiah. And what happened was that it fulfilled the prophecy that the Messiah would come through what's known as the Davidic line. In other words, that they would come from the ancestry of David. And that was true of both Mary and Joseph, even though it was a virgin birth. And so what's important for us to keep in mind is that the, the Messiah coming is a fulfillment of many Old Testament prophecies. This was so important, in fact, that when Jesus was on the Emmaus Road after his resurrection, and it took a few hours to walk to Emmaus, Jesus, the scripture tells us, isn't spending this time looking at the, these two disciples and going, told you I would rise from the dead. That's not where he's spending. He's not spending his time explaining that. The scripture tells us that he spends this time opening up the Old Testament and showing them the way that Jesus has fulfilled the prophecies that he is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. 
In fact, this is so important. Peter, when he's preaching in Acts 10, 38, he says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. So that's the introduction. I know you're going, "Ah, that pains me a little, Paul. But here's what we need to do for a few minutes, loved ones. I'm going to ask you in this next section to lean into your left brain a little bit. We have folks here, many gifted people that are creatives, and some uh, some creatives are not as, you know, it's just not, to, if you're going to spend a few minutes just doing some logic and facts, I, I I want you to know the reason I'm going there is because God loves you. I love you. And I I, I think that what we're going to cover for a few minutes is really important for all of us. So, Jesus is not only fulfilling the reality that he is the Christ and he is the Messiah. Loved ones, here's something even more important for us to catch related to that fact. And that is that when you spoke of Messiah or Christ and anointing of the Holy Spirit, you look back at that time, and as we should today, into the Old Testament. Who was anointed in the Old Testament? Was everybody anointed It was in relationship with Yahweh. That's not how it worked. In the Old Testament, God anointed persons in three offices, prophet, priest, and king. And you'll find that consistently. Prophets were those who foretold the truth of God, even foretold things in the future. Priests were persons who were also anointed, and they stood between God and humanity and God's people, and we need to pay attention to that. They were mediators between God and people, priests and high priests. We're going to come back to that in a second as we journey down our left brain road for a moment. But also, kings were anointed. You may remember that from Scripture. They were anointed to carry out civil authority with the the responsibility to serve and to rule. But all of these, and this is easy for us to overlook in Scripture, all of these are carrying out messianic roles because we see this fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And we see it fulfilled even in what Jesus, what's predicted about Jesus into the future. The Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, prophet, priest, king, All is fulfilled in one person, Jesus Christ. And so in Matthew 3, when we see the Spirit of God fall upon Jesus, he's anointed. And as he's anointed, we hear the Father's words out of heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am pleased, well pleased. So church, here's here's a thought, and I'm going to say it twice because it's so important. When you think Christ, think Messiah. And when you think Christ and Messiah, think anointing of the Holy Spirit. When you think Christ, think Messiah. And when you think Christ and Messiah, think anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's unpack that a little bit. Some of you are going, didn't you just unpack it? No, we didn't. All I did was validate the reality that we see out of Scripture. But let's look at this together for just a few moments. First of all, a prophet, when they were anointed, they were a spokesperson for God. They were a proclaimer of the future. But when you have Jesus Christ, the Messiah, he no longer has to say, thus saith the Lord, like the Old Testament prophets did. What Jesus does is just simply say the words, I say unto you. 
because he is the fulfillment of that picture. He is not just a prophet. He is the prophet operating in the office of prophet, bringing the word of God to the people of God and the future. He's also foretelling because Jesus doesn't merely teach us how to live Sermon on the Mount, but he also tells us about the future, Matthew 24 and other places as well. And so we recognize he's foretelling, he's foretelling, he's in the office of prophet. And this is why the author of Hebrews would write to us, but in these last days, he, God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And so he's a prophet. He fulfills that, the anointing of a prophet. But secondly, Jesus is anointed as priest, not a priest, but the ultimate priest. And again, a priest is a mediator between God and people. This is why Paul would write to young Timothy. Here we go. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. And again, a mediator is an in-between person, between you and God, one that mediates parties that are at variance. And there is a variance between our state and being in the presence of a holy God. We have fallen. We are all prone to sin, prone to leave the God we love. And there's a variance, but Jesus is our mediator. That's what the scripture teaches, that through his shed blood, through his atonement, his propitiation, which means blood atonement over our sin, he's our mediator. This is why Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father, but through me, Jesus is our mediator. But that's not all. Jesus is our high priest. He's not just a priest. He's our high priest. Now, the reason that's important is because in the Old Testament, the high priest would go into the most holy place in the temple once a year, and he would press through a six-inch bell and then take a hyssop branch and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat where the presence of God dwelt for the sins of the people. And the picture, when the, when the scripture declares that Jesus now is our high priest, it's not necessary for any human to do sprinkle blood somewhere any longer. Jesus is the high priest that shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And that's why the writer of Hebrews said, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In other words, he took on human form so that he might become merciful and a faithful high priest in service to God, to make propitiation, which is blood atonement. And I've said to you before, in order for our sins to be forgiven, something of equal or higher value had to be sacrificed. And it was the Son of God. It's just like, it's just like, if you ever play Rook, this is a strained metaphor. If you ever play Rook, you got the trump card, the trump cards laid down because it's of greater value than all the other cards. When the blood of Jesus is shed, trumps everything. Your sin is not greater than the mighty trump card of Jesus. Propitiation. Too good to be true, too true to ignore. Glory to God. High priest. Writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, 
Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, not through a veil. Now he's he, the high priest, the main one, the ultimate one, passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let's hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Can I stop right there? Jesus sympathizes with your weakness. That's not your pastor's opinion. That's the word of God for the people of God. Jesus sympathizes with your weaknesses, who in every respect has been tempted just like you. He understands. But the scripture says, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy from him. We don't get what we deserve and grace, the empowerment of God to help in time of need. Now I've got, again, we're still doing the left brain work and I get it. And, and, and I'm, I'm not an orator. I'm a communicator and I'm watching your eyes and I know some of you are struggling a little bit. I love you. Hang in here. Okay. Hang in here. One more out of Hebrews. And being made perfect, he, that is Jesus Christ, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest. Now notice what comes next, because that can, that can, according or after the order of Mechizeldek. Now that's a little left field, is it not? You're like, what? Let me share this with you. Mechizeldek shows up first in the book of Genesis. We don't know a lot about him other than he's an eternal being, and we know that he also serves in the office of priest, prophet, and king. And some people say he's a prototype of Jesus himself. But because the Bible doesn't tell us everything about him, there's a lot we don't know. But here's the picture. When he showed up in Genesis, Abraham was in a crisis. And when Mechizeldek showed up, he was he strengthened Abraham in a circumstance that he was in when he was going through difficulty. And that should be a radiant picture for us, body of Christ. That's a picture of Jesus available to you in weakness, available to you when you feel wiped out and defeated, that there is a greater power available to you. And so Jesus, prophet, priest, but also king. And you see this in the Old Testament. David's anointed as king by Samuel. You see this repeated in other places. And even the book of Isaiah, when it's talking about Jesus, it, the, in chapter 9, Isaiah revert, refers to something about Jesus that's eternally true, but also is going to come true one day related to Jesus' second coming, when he says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And then we see in the book of Revelation this, this picture of Jesus that one day that They'll wage war against the lamb. That's Jesus. But the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Or in Revelation 19, a couple of chapters later, on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written king of kings and Lord of lords. Now we're picking up on where Handel, when he wrote Messiah, where it was based upon the scripture. And then the day comes when Jesus reigns on earth. And this is what the author of Revelation, John wrote about in verse 11, or chapter 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices shouting in heaven. The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. And this is why Paul writes in Ephesians 1.10, in light of knowing all these things, and this is the plan. At the right time, he'll bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Now you may, now here we go. You may go, what does this have to do with me? It has everything to do with you, loved ones. Because 
When you lose fellowship with Jesus, you lose fellowship with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And when you lose fellowship with the anointing of the Holy Spirit, you lose the gift of the priest operating as your mediator in your life between you and God. When you lose fellowship with Jesus Christ, you you lose the gift of the power and the love of the one who is for you, not against you, who rules, who is king, operating and blessing and strengthening your walk and your life. When you lose fellowship with the king, you lose the gift of prophet that is the life-giving word of God inebriating your understanding and your spirit, your soul for the glory of God. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Galatians 2.20, and many of you know it by heart. I am crucified with Christ, yet it's not I who live, it's Christ who lives in me, and I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he died for me. Now, when that verse starts out, I have been crucified with Christ, you, you realize what that means? That means that I'm not living with my old nature under control. In other words, I'm not living according to the flesh. I, I'm not living with my pride being out front. I'm not living with anger being reigning on my heart. I'm not living with lust anchoring on my heart. I'm not living with unforgiveness reigning on my heart. I'm not living according to the flesh. That's that's what Paul says, being crucified with Christ. I'm I'm not living for those things. I'm living, I want to live into his purposes, not my fleshy preferences. I've been crucified with Christ. But but get this, church. This is this is one of those verses where you begin going, this is how Christianity works. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Let me ask you a question. Why does Paul use the word Christ there instead of Son of God? Why does Paul use the word Christ there instead of Son of Man or the name Jesus? Well, the reason is because Paul understands the very things we've been talking about over the last several minutes with utilizing our left brain for a few moments. Paul understands that Jesus is the Christ, the Christos, the Messiah. And as the Messiah, as the Christos, as the anointed one of God, fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies, Paul understands that he has the authority to literally reign in our heart in a way that we taste the gift of life of the word of God through the prophet Jesus, the life and power of God through King Jesus, and and the, the role of priest as he mediates between us and God for the glory of God. I like good music, just like most of you, I'm sure. And a number of years ago, I bought some new speakers. I had a friend advise me that there was this site on eBay where you could get these re- rebuilt, supposedly high-end speakers at a better price. And uh, what he said was true. And so I ordered these Cambridge Soundworks speakers. They're not high, high end, but they're higher end. And I got them for a really good price. Hooked them up to my stereo system, turned the music up, and all I got was distortion. And so I I called my friend up. I said, hey, I got these speakers. They're, something's not right. He walked into my den just like that. He goes, you need an amplifier. And I'm like, okay. He says, you got to have 
more power to drive these speakers. The reason some of you are frustrated or have yet to discover what Jesus and what the Apostle Paul is talking about in Galatians 2.20 is because you don't have the amplifier turned on. And that is to come into contact with the purpose person of Jesus, the amplifier. This is why John wrote these words as he closed out the book of John. He said, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe, look at this phrase, that you may believe Jesus is the Christ. Now, that was so important because John, just like the Apostle Paul, understood that the Christ is available to you. He's the anointed one, that he is the priest and the king and the prophet all in one and is available to dwell in you. Now, when John finished this verse, he didn't say that you may believe Jesus is the Christ so you can become more religious or so that you could become a prude. No, he said, I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that my believing you may have, say it out loud with me, life in his name. The word there for life is the word zoe, and it literally, in the original language, means when you study not only the word, but the way it's used in the New Testament, supernatural life source from the inside out. It's not I who lives, but Christ who lives in me.